0: G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and today's dangerous idea is, is Israel uh, very, very bad, or is it uh, it good? Is it an apartheid state, or is it a plucky little nation just trying to make do uh, with a bad hand that it's been dealt? Anthony Lowenstein is an independent journalist. Uh, Like me, of Jewish heritage, like me, a descendant of Holocaust survivors, not like me, very, very, uh, very well educated about all that's wrong uh, with the great state of Israel, or not so great uh, state of Israel. He lived there. He lived in uh, East Jerusalem from 2016 to 2020. He's the co-founder of Declassified Australia, cares a lot about privacy rights, human rights, Palestinian rights. He's written for The Guardian, for The New York Times, The New York Review of Books, many others. And he's written many a book, of which his latest is uh, The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. And this focuses mainly on the the spy technology, the military technology that Israel uses to export this kind of uh, ideology of besiegement to the rest of the world, capitalized upon by far-right uh, uh, people and, uh, and politicians and autocrats and theocrats the world over, uh, to, uh, to pull off some not-so-nice things on innocent people. I wanted to talk to Anthony mainly to have an argument with someone who's more anti-Israel than I am and I usually find myself on the position of being the more anti-Israel Jew when I'm talking to other prominent Jews in the public sphere. Um, you can go back and listen to my interview with Chloe Valdery, who's a fabulous and articulate and brilliant woman, but is, uh, is very pro-Israel. And uh, in that Exchange. I'm the the anti-Israel peacenik, and in this exchange, I'm the pro-Israel hawk. I hope that both conversations are useful. This is basically me taking an opportunity that I've wanted to take for some time to have a, an argument or a, a disagreement, a friendly debate with uh, someone who uh, is much more critical of Israel than I am. Uh, Anthony is a brilliant guy. He and I disagree on much. Oh, by the way, I should add: if ever you have uh, considered s- subscribing to the premium podcast and go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen to get your own private personal feed that gives you the additional bonus content. Today's bonus is a doozy. Uh, It's a continuation of my chat with Anthony, but I didn't realize it was going to get so interesting. Uh, If you want to know why I find myself backed into a corner arguing for (laughs) the case that there are better and worse forms of ethnic cleansing and better and worse forms of rape... Uh, what could possibly go wrong how could I get cancelled for that then you probably want a subscription to the premium feed I hope you enjoy this interview with the one and only Anthony Lowenstein seem to be a couple of ways of criticizing Israel. There are Israeli idealists or Jewish idealists around the world who say that the country's gone off the rails in the past couple of decades, thanks to uh, right-wing Netanyahuism. And then there are those who would say that the whole project was doomed from the start and it was a misbegotten concept to try to create a homeland for the Jews. Do you believe one of those or both?
1: Uh, I'd say that the project was, I mean, when I say doomed from the start, of course, it depends who you ask. I mean, I say that as someone who is Jewish and much of my family were killed in the Holocaust and had Israel existed before the Second World War, who knows if those family would have gone to Israel. I mean, it's impossible to know, of course, it's something I've thought about over the years. But from its very beginning, in 1948, as Israel was created in the ashes of the Holocaust, it was proudly excluding anyone who was not Jewish. I mean, that wasn't particularly even a secret at the time, and it's certainly not a secret now based on huge amounts of declassified documents, some of which are in the book and other places in books, other people's books and that the plan was to try to kick out as many Palestinians and Arabs as possible. That was the plan from the beginning. You have David Ben-Gurion, the first country's prime minister, openly saying so in declassified documents at the time, 1948, 1949. So is the idea of a place for Jews to be secure a bad idea? Absolutely not. Historically, of course, Jews have every reason often to feel unsafe obviously culminating in the Holocaust amongst a multitude of other horrendous actions. But the problem is that 75 years on, after the establishment of Israel, you now have, even putting aside the Palestinians, the occupation, all that, which we'll talk about, you have now increasingly, frankly, a war within Israel itself. It's mostly non-violent. I'm talking about between either the settler movement who are, often very hardline, and hardline is even the wrong word, they are often fundamentalist Jewish theocrats whose vision is a Taliban-style state, obviously Jewish, not uh, not Muslim, and they are a minority, but they have frankly taken the controls of the state long before Netanyahu. I mean, there's an argument that, as you said at the beginning in the question, that some people say, well, the country's gone off the rails since he came into power... His current government extremely extreme and if only we get back to the good old days of supposed liberal Zionism or Itzhak Rabin or former prime ministers who were seen as more progressive or more open to negotiation with Palestinians but the problem is that for so many years I mean, arguably since the beginning but certainly since 1967 when there was a Six day war, and Israel took control of East Jerusalem and Gaza in the West Bank and the Golan Heights. So, 56 years now, there's been an occupation, it's the longest occupation in modern times. There's been this unbelievable campaign started off as a minority of a fringe group of Jews who believe that they had the right to settle all the land. To now, we have three quarters of a million Jews living in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. No one thinks they're actually ever going to be removed, they're there now. Pretty permanently, I would say, that it's an extremist ideology. It basically to the point where you have just this year, and it's been going for years. And I think much of the Western press has shielded Israel, in my view, from this the reality that there are pogroms regularly, Jewish led pogroms against Palestinians. This is not a few bad apples, this is happening regularly. So to me,
0: you're talking about in the occupied territories.
1: I'm talking about in the West Bank principally, absolutely. But but, I mean, at the beginning of this answer,
0: you said that it extends, you know, setting aside the territories, talking about internally in Israel proper. Uh, I mean, you can say what you want about the settlements. And 1967, of course, was not a war that Israel chose. It was a war of invasion. And then they found themselves, you know, according to many generals, kind of undesirably against their own will in control of all these areas that they'd rather not control and the process of extricating themselves from those areas was tricky how do you do that i mean obviously it would have been preferable if they if you'd been able to create a second state uh, but it's understandable that if you're trying to have a jewish state and then another state next to it and those people don't want to negotiate for another state but they want to drive you into the sea then what's the what do you do with those territories? I mean, the answer is certainly not that you occupy them with far-right settlers who engage in pogroms against them and you ignore international law and just try to occupy as many of them as you possibly can. But what's the alternative? I mean, I guess,
1: I know we have time to talk about this, but I mean, so much of what you just said in that description, I would fundamentally disagree with. Um, well, go for I it. mean, no, look, what bits? yeah, I mean, I think there is no doubt that for many many years the myth I'm what's suggesting this particularly you but in general the myth and I heard this when I was growing up I'm from Melbourne originally and grew up in Melbourne in a liberal Jewish home and Israel was never the center of our lives but it was something that we were told we should support because of the history of the Jewish people and the Holocaust and the idea was always that Palestinians don't want to have us there there being in Israel They don't respect us, they want to kill us, they want to throw us into the sea. We have no choice but to be strong and essentially control them brutally. And of course, in the 20th century, including after the establishment of Israel, there's no doubt there are a number of Arab armies and states and peoples that didn't like Israel and didn't like Jews, and in fact that continues to this day. I'm not denying any of that, and the book doesn't shy away from that. I've spent a lot of time working in the... Arab and Muslim world as, obviously, a Jew. And I've often talked about this and written about this. I don't deny that there is anti-Semitism at all or hatred of Jews in the Arab and Muslim world. It's real. Undeniably, it's real. But if you, as a state, choose to... And I think this argument says Israel wanted to extricate itself, it didn't have a choice. There's a choice. I mean, after 56 years, this argument that says... Well, we'd love to withdraw, but now we can't. And if we do withdraw, the Arabs no, are going to come no, after but, us. No, but you're fast
0: so, forwarding. You're fast forwarding through a half century. I mean, I was only making the point that in the immediate aftermath of 1967, uh-huh. would we hmm. at least agree that the 1967 war was not a war of Israeli aggression?
1: No, <laughs> wouldn't we wouldn't agree, agree with, with that. that. No, I think there is a. I mean, there's no. So there, all these the Arab no
0: armies were- on the border, ready to invade. Yes. What would you but have there Israel was- do?
1: There were lots of declassified documents that have come out in the last 10, 20 years, particularly thanks to Israeli Jewish historians that have questioned that narrative. There was an Arab threat. I'm not denying that. I'm not denying it then or now. But there was not this inevitability that 1973 Yom Kippur War was a different story that was essentially an attempt of a surprise war against Israel oh, actually really i'm getting those unprepared. i'm getting i'm getting
0: 1973 confused with 1967. you're right yes okay 67 is a slightly more ambiguous case yeah 73 was the Yom Kippur war where the armies were all amassed and then they were ready to ready to strike either way uh, so yeah. uh, i'll grant you that point but either way it once when we're in the mid 70s have you seen that amazing documentary which is interviews with the generals who were presiding over yes. the occupation i mean they speak with one voice about the the tragedy of the thing. I, I sometimes feel like because there is currently a disingenuous uh, right-wing Israeli claim that oh we have to you know we have no partners in peace, we have no interlocutors, we're a, we're a defenseless nation, we have to do these things, our hands are tied because that claim gets used so disingenuously as a, a rationale for barbaric behavior by the Israeli defense forces and barbaric policies against Palestinians. It's easy to say that there's, to discredit it and say that there's no truth there. But at many stages in Israel's history, there has been a truth there. I mean, in the in the late 40s and early 50s, and in the late 60s and early 70s, there really wasn't anybody to have a dialogue with. So we can talk about the the nation going off the rails. But in terms of the question of the sort of intrinsic uh, wrongness of the project from the start, I, I don't uh, I don't see it in that first half century. I mean, of course, it was horrible for the Palestinians who were driven from their land. But how else do you make a, a Jewish state if you're a Jewish settler than by creating a Jewish area and that with every expectation that the Palestinians will live side by side at some point? But that was not the expectation. I mean, right from the beginning, the aim of
1: 1948 was deliberately to ethnically cleanse, as what happened, 750,000 Palestinians. And today, fast yeah, forward but 75 years, the aim was to have, have a have...
0: tiny little Israeli state where the Jews would live, and the hope was that those Palestinians would live in, you know, that what is now the West Bank and Jordan.
1: No, the hope was they would live in neighbouring Arab states because they had no desire for... Palestinians. the aim was to have as few Palestinians or Arabs as possible in the Jewish state, which is still the aim today. I mean, it hasn't been particularly successful, frankly, in that level, because the vast majority of Palestinians have not left, have not have not decided to leave. They've decided to stay, despite all the challenges. I mean, the issue of legitimacy of a state, on the one hand, you could argue it's a rather irrelevant argument. I mean, the state exists, it's real, it's there, it's not going to disappear tomorrow. But I think, like a lot of states akin to Israel, and Australia is one of those. There is There are serious, profoundly unresolved questions about its birth and how you deal with that history. Now, obviously, Australia is going through that conversation. I think we're not dealing with it very well here personally, but some states deal with it better than others. Other settler colonial states, all these kinds of states, New Zealand, Canada, US, and others, are having these kinds of conversations and, and policies. Some deal with it kind of okay, mostly not particularly well, I think Israel hasn't even started that conversation. If you speak to, as I do, many Jewish people, not just in Australia but elsewhere, and of course I'm generalizing, there are many exceptions, there's not even an acknowledgement. that there was ethnic cleansing in 1948, which is acknowledged and written about mostly by really? Israeli Jewish... Yes. Israeli I don't Jewish find historians. That. among
0: my... You're, you're hanging in the wrong Jew, wrong Jews. No, circles. I'm hanging
1: with the, probably the Jews that you hang out with. I'm talking about <laughs> the majority of the... I mean, the mainstream everyone Jewish would, establishment everyone is would, not left-wing.
0: Everyone would agree that the... I mean, every everyone who I know in liberal Jewish circles and academia... Yeah, but would liberal, agree that- Josh.
1: Yes, that's, yeah, that's liberal. The vast majority of Jewish leadership is not... Not politically, they're not. They on they Israel, they're smaller,
0: not. Well, they're, they are liberals when they when you look at the Israel, the Jews outside of Israel. I mean, the Jews inside Israel keep electing these right wing governments, much to the chagrin of the diaspora. Absolutely, but for
1: decades, in much of the Jewish diaspora, the U.S., Australia, Canada, South Africa, England, there's a reason why virtually every single mainstream Israel. Advocate, lobbyist, call it whatever you want, is is right wing to far right. That's not accidental. Well,
0: yeah, the doesn't people who de- but the people who devote their lives to defending Israel are Israeli. But doesn't forms. that matter? But the, I mean the fact that well, it yes, might but matter. But... but your claim wasn't that the people that the spokespeople are apologists for the Israeli right, but the Jewish people are. Who, I am I don't saying think Jewish that people deny the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in the forties. Well, or the again... wrongness of the settlements.
1: <laughs> I guess yes, yes, I, yes. Of course, many. I mean, obviously, I like I have you know Jewish I'm friends and right whatever now. <laughs> who who are who are profoundly disillusioned with it. But there's a difference. What I say, and it's not particularly in this book. I've said it elsewhere for many years. I see huge complicity and silence in much of the establishment Jewish diaspora in Australia and elsewhere who have either said nothing or much in the last decades about what's happening, or they've defended what's going on. There is a reason why, without Jewish diaspora support, Israel would not exist. It wouldn't exist. I and think you're right say, that people well, are
0: conflicted li- about removing their support altogether from Israel. Uh, yeah, Jews in the diaspora. So it becomes but that's a amazing, difficult thing yes, to talk but that, about. But I don't think that they're, does. they're carrying water for a notion that Israel was founded without the sin of the expulsion of an entire civilization of people. I mean, in some ways it's ju- in some ways, I think Jews outside Israel and inside Israel uh, grapple on the left at least, grapple with this, in at least as complicated a way as we grapple with the australian the the tragedy for first nations australians or the fact that the western half of the united states is sitting on top of mexico and we don- we actually don't talk about those things as much as we talk about the 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 tragedies and the sins of israel in some ways i think israel looms larger at least in the global consciousness as a villain, because it happened so much more recently. I mean, if we'd done to the Aborigines what we did in the, in the 1700s in the 1940s and 50s, then Australia would, you know, be as maligned as Israel is as well. But we may just swim in slightly different circles.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe. <laughs> but the argument that says, oh, there's huge amounts of international attention on Israel, it's in the media a lot. Of course, that's true. But Israel has complete impunity. It's not like after 56 years of occupation to seriously suggest that Israel is under this massive amount of international pressure from where? It doesn't exist politically. It just doesn't exist. There well, we're obviously a about Jewish... the,
0: the, the sort of conflictedness of Jews ourselves, I suppose. Yes, in but, this I, absolutely. but I absolutely take I think your point that there is. That...
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: But geopolitically, there are lots of reasons it's why countries, uh, you know, don't pressure Israel. Uh, you know, not least of which is a point that you make in the book, which is that every time someone criticises Israel, the Israeli government cynically uses accusations of anti-Semitism as a way to uh, to deflect uh, legitimate criticism of its policies. Not just Israel, but often the Jewish establishment in various countries.
1: I mean, you think it, it doesn't happen in Australia or the US or elsewhere. there are True. continual attempts to pressure media to pressure politicians. This is how it works. I've written about this for twenty years, that there is a there's not uniformity of course, with the Australian Jewish community on Israel, and there is a shift going on, there's no doubt, and which is reflected in the US particularly, where there's really a a Jewish insurgency going on, as I call it within the Jewish community, where you have in general younger Jews, versus older Jews. It's not quite as neat as that, but that's generally how it is. And many older Jews who have spent decades supporting Israel, being uncritical towards Israel, at least publicly, and younger Jews who are saying, not in my name, I can no longer support or I'm not going to support a state that commits hideous abuses against Palestinians. And that leads to growing pressure on politicians, alternative lobby groups, alternative Jewish organizations, etc. And to me, that civil war that Needs to happen in a Jewish community is utterly vital. Mm,
0: the idea that there are, I mean, but I think that, so yeah. many liberal, yeah, I, I think the the like there are so
1: many liberal Jews who feel you know there's the expression Josh crying Israel has Israelis have this expression crying and shooting, which is not unique to Israel, but it's often used by people who sort of say, oh look, it's it's really tough what's happening in there, you know, it's the occupation, gee, it's really awful, but you know what choice do we have? Well, in that argument, you could be saying that in 50 or 100 years. What choice do we have to occupy another people? You have a choice. It's like Israel, you know, Gideon Levy, who's a close friend of mine, who's an amazing Israeli Jewish journalist, who often sort of says and writes, Israel's the only country that occupies another country that wants the world to be sympathetic towards them. They're the <laughs> occupier.
0: They're <laughs> occupying people, brutally. I mean, I think oh, this, is, like, say, uh, uh, th- this is... It's like saying the Americans after 9-11 going tr- to Iraq and Afghanistan... And- the, 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 I think this is the winning terrain though, Anthony, rather than the criticisms about uh, Zionism in the sense that we're likelier to win – well, you are likelier to win converts like me by tapping into the inherent un- injustice of depriving an entire people in perpetuity of, uh, of our homeland and requiring them to live effectively in squalid outdoor refugee camps forever – In the name of security, that's clearly an untenable and morally unacceptable. Position And as I agree with you, there is a generational shift on this and more and more Jews around the world, which is why I think it's now uh, certainly a majority outside of Israel, although that I agree with you, the majority is not necessarily reflected in the mainstream spokes organizations for defending Israel and uh, and Australian and American Jewry, but nonetheless, uh, a groundswell of people who've become fed up with the the uh, total disregard for the rights of self determination of the Palestinians. When you say they have, they ha- there is a choice. I think you're making it sound like an easier choice than than most people would concede. In the sense that, of course, you can pull out of the the occupation, uh, and then people would say, so, so then. What are the contours of of a security agreement with the neighboring state? Obviously, you would not condone the Gaza style solution of just pull out and put up a big wall and block the place off from everybody else. So that that state has to have some kind of responsible standing in the world and there has to be a security guarantee between it and Israel. and that's where the details become.
1: Critical, and for sure. Look, all those things need to be negotiated. But just to be clear, virtually every Arab state is in a quasi peace with Israel now, anyway. I mean, it's not like well, Iran. Only is I who a would say see, That's evidence that strength works. Well, you would say that, but it's not. It's a. It's a piece that, it, that that's paper thin. I mean, I write about this in the book that if one really thinks that Egypt and Jordan and Saudi and all these other countries are actually friends with Israel. It's delusional. They're not. Their leaders are so-called friends with Israel because they frankly want arms and surveillance technology from Israel. If you see most of the polling across much of the Arab world, which has been the case for decades, it hasn't really changed. There are some people who want to be friends with Israel for sure, but it's a tiny, tiny minority. Most people see the occupation for what it is. It's a festering sore. I mean, I spend not just in the book, but I've said this for years, that I'm not a defender or supporter of Hamas in Gaza. I spend a lot of time in Gaza. I spend time with Hamas as as, as a reporter and with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. They're deeply corrupt and a disaster for the Palestinian people. I'm not defending them at all. I think they're a disaster. But ultimately, there's an occupying power. And of course you need to negotiate and all that's true however you resolve this conflict. And there's been various people who have written books. I did a book years ago called After Zionism, which had huge numbers of prominent writers, Jewish and Arab and Palestinian, talking about what it would look like. Not a utopia if Israel's a Jewish state ends, but how it would work with some kind of uh, quasi-peace with a a settlement, with um, how you try to bring the peoples together. And it would take a bloody long time and you look at how Northern Ireland did it, far from perfect. You look at how South Africa did it, far from perfect. But you take various examples from different models and there have been lots of people who talk about this now and I don't talk about this in the particular book but I talked about it in previous books and other people who are on the ground do talk about it a lot. You don't really hear this at all, frankly, in much of the Western press. You don't really hear it in Israel, it's in the Jewish press anyway. And I think there's really been this sense for... Years for a lot of people, in I'm talking mainly, I guess mainly about non-Jewish people now, that they kind of subscribe to this notion still of how Israel sells itself, which is it's a thriving democracy in the Middle East. Now, maybe you and I hear that and say, "Who are you kidding?"
0: Well, I can't speak for you. <laughs> I would say, I don't that. think who are you kidding. But I just think it falls far short of that. I mean, <laughs> you know. Of all the places, if you created a dartboard with all of the countries of the Middle East on it and you were throwing darts and you were blindfolded and you didn't know which country you'd hit and you were going to end up in one of those countries and you didn't know what your circumstances would be there, uh, then when you took the blindfold off and you saw that you'd hit Israel instead of Yemen uh, or Saudi Arabia you, or Iran, you'd probably be happy. Well, I guess it depends
1: who you are, but um, and also let's be clear that the the fact that so many Arab states now are being assisted in their autocracy by Israeli weapons and surveillance is a pretty key part of how Israel's trying to maintain its call it dominance or whatever it is in the in the hegemony in the region. US, I want to get to that, that yeah. and I
0: also want to get to to the one-state solution. But just to put a button on the two-state solution and the security and the and the conundrum of Israeli security, the when we say that you know when the when the cynical right-wing Israeli hawks say, uh, "We don't have anyone to negotiate with. Who are you? What are who are we going to talk to?" Uh, and you nice see accent, that- by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, it's my best, Naftali Bennett. Uh, Oh, really?
1: (laughs) God, lucky you! Go with that guy. I got
0: to. I interviewed him for half an hour in New York uh, on TV at once when he was foreign minister. That that was interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating.
1: Mm. Well, he's a well. I would call him an extremist, but I don't know what he is. Absolutely, he's absolutely
0: an extremist, but he has that beautiful. He's incredibly cute and charming. He has a winning smile. He's he's just such a lovely guy in the way that. people who preside over regimes of utter brutality uh, can can be. I, I, I don't know. Um, I remember the first thing he said to me was he, was he was doing a tour of the US. I was in New York and he was saying that, uh, you know, Israel can really be a model for uh, other Western countries uh, about how to manage their security arrangements. Uh, and I said my first answer to him was like, if I'm living in, america or australia and you come to say you come to me and you say i've got a great solution for you you too can live just the way we do in israel i'm not taking like i'm not buying that i'm not buying that i don't think that you're really i don't think you've managed the security situation as well as you think you have um and let's get to that but so the this on the security of the border were there to be a, a palestinian state didn't you just say that the illusion of of israel's security is paper thin in all of these countries and they see the occupation for what it is and i mean you can't you can blame the occupation if you want but long before 1967 these populations already hated the concept of israel and hated jews specifically as a people so what is the rationale for being sanguine that israel doesn't need a strong security buffer
1: well there's a few things there one i wouldn't accept that that the majority of Arab people before sixty seven hated Jews. There was anti-Semitism in the Arab and Muslim world. Absolutely, do there they now? now but uh, well, most. Do they what? the majority hate of Jews. Arabs hate is hate Jews? I mean, it's. <sighs> I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that there's no polling that backs that up. As I said, no, I mean, I'm not, sure, I'm not the saying
0: polls. they, I'm not saying they do, but I'm saying there to is whatever, some, there whatever, is whatever semitism extent anti-Semitism is Absolutely a motivating is. factor in Arab countries' national life, it was there prior to the occupation. And who do you think often fuels that? Western-backed leaders.
1: <laughs> I mean, do you think, who do you think's pushing it? I mean, these, well, these, now these they might be,
0: but how do we explain it in centuries past? Oh, Well, in
1: the Arab countries, or just in general. I mean, anti-Semitism both. is in one in one case inexplicable and also incredibly obvious. I mean, it's both, of course. I mean, how do we understand it? And sometimes we can, and often I think it's irrational and impossible to understand. I mean, all I'm you know, saying is
0: obviously. that the, the there is there seems to be a Pollyanna idea that some peaceniks uh, peddle, which is that if only you got rid of the occupation and gave the Palestinians justice, then there'd no longer be a security threat against the Jewish people and against Israel, but uh, I'm not sure.
1: Well, no, I, I, well, first of all, well, but there's, okay. I mean, firstly, the idea of there will not be a Palestinian state. There won't be a two-state solution. It's done. It's, it was never going to happen. And it will, it will never happen because there's no interest in any major force. I mean, I can't say never, say never. It's very unlikely, I'll frame it like that, that it's ever going to happen. And there's a reason for that because Israel has no intention of, because it's impossible to separate the land equally, because there's no, there's no interest in doing so. There's not really any any international pressure in doing so. Israeli, the vast majority of Israeli Jews have no interest in it, growing numbers of right, But they also have
0: no interest in having a one state that's not Zionist, that's not a home my homeland for the jews could you can't you imagine a hypothetical state yeah, which but is still the pass. official policy of like the united states and most western countries which is you go back to the 1967 borders you have some kind of united nations zone a dmz between the two countries the the borders are not porous they're you know and each to each their own that's still the official policy supposedly but i share your i share your i share your total pessimism on whether or not that's achievable at the moment well, given it's the pace pessimism of it's
1: because yeah, and also the sense that, again, the idea of... I would compare this to, say, when you're saying, you know, would the Israelis not feel nervous about their security? But this is exactly, Josh, what white South Africans were saying in 1990, 1992. There's going to be a bloodbath. We can't give up. We can't give up apartheid. It's just impossible. This is a crazy idea. What are you, what are you Westerners all talking about? And that comparison is incredibly apt because any Israeli Jews that I know, the vast majority, and Palestinians for that matter too, will say, this will not change from within. It won't. This, I mean, you know, much of the Western press has loved all these huge protests this year in Israel against Netanyahu and what he's trying to do to the Supreme Court, and I'm against all that as well, of course. But it's the protests are an illusion. They're not protesting the occupation, they're protesting a Supreme Court that, by the way, has spent most of the half, last half-century supporting the occupation. It's a rubber stamp. So most Israeli Jewish friends of mine are saying, yeah, they go to the protest and they have like an anti-occupation part of it. Often the main organisers don't even want those people there. So there's this idea somehow that they're trying to save Jewish democracy, and which is an anathema because there are no Palestinians protesting, which most of the press just ignores. Why is that? Why do you think no Palestinians are protesting? I'm not talking about the West Bank, but Palestinians in Israel... None of them are protesting. I'm not in support of those protests because it's not, it's not for them. It has nothing to do with them. I don't feel any connection to a protest movement that is desperate to talk about Jewish democracy. I mean, Jewish democracy is like saying, asking a, a Muslim in India, and I talk a lot in the book about India, what's happening there. It's transforming into a profoundly scary place under Modi. We like Muslims saying to Hindus, can we, can we assist you in backing a Hindu fundamentalist? That sounds great for us. Of course that wouldn't happen. So the idea of so much of the, not particularly just you, but I'm saying in general, this idea of worried about Israeli security. I worry about Jewish safety. I worry about this all the time. And I talk about it and I write about it. I'm talking about in general, not particularly just in Israel, but just globally. Anti-Semitism is undeniably rising in various places and it worries me. And it happens, I think, for some reasons we understand and many we don't. I think Israel is a factor. I don't think it's the only one by any means. And this idea somehow that the concept of ending apartheid in Israel and Palestine would potentially threaten Jewish lives, sure, let's worry about Jewish lives and uh, we should worry about it, but (laughs) they're not the ones who are suffering now. I mean, they're living in comparative luxury to people literally down the road who are not all living in squalor, many are not, but they're living under an apartheid system. So I want to worry about both peoples, all peoples who live there, not just this deep concern. Because you wouldn't say to me, Josh, how about worrying about Palestinian safety? Do they have safety now? They haven't even got a state. They have no one to protect them. Literally no one. Do we ever ask the question about worried about... Palestinian safety their security demands moving forward no one ever asked about that they're under well, occupation I mean in you do, the do, sense but that I'm saying in general right
0: yeah I think the reason for that though is because they already don't have any I mean even if you were a good-hearted person the the concern when you're setting up a two-party state is is how do you reassure the people who have to have something to lose? And the only, the only party that has something to lose here is the Israeli side. But let's talk... And also, just do you want to just expand on what you mean by apartheid? People will hear you call Israel an apartheid state and that immediately raises some people's hackles. Why is it an apartheid state? It will
1: some. So this is not just a, a comment that I make as Antony. It's been Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International in the last few years, every single... Every single Israeli Jewish human rights organization, every major one, every Palestinian human rights organization have put out reports in the last years, although, of course, Palestinians have been saying this for years, in not just the West Bank, but also in Israel itself, where there is Jewish supremacy, essentially, where if you're a non-Jew, you are treated differently, you're treated as a second class citizen, not just under occupation, but also within Israel itself. And there's a legal definition for what apartheid is. Obviously, it was initially talked about in the context of South Africa many years ago. And I talk a lot in the book, actually, about the real comparisons between Israel and South Africa, both when South Africa and apartheid existed. And that those two nations are incredibly close. They inspired each other. They loved what the other country was doing. In South Africa's case, to blacks, of course, and Israel to Palestinians. So when I talk about apartheid in Israel today and in Palestine... It's a legal definition which essentially means that Jews, in this case, have a supremacy, that they are given far more rights than anyone who's non-Jewish. And what Israel faces with that reality is how long will the world accept, which they frankly do now, I would say 110%, with an apartheid state that's lasted far, far longer than apartheid South Africa, which after decades eventually, in the 90s, The world said enough, of course, after a very long and painful battle, both within that country and externally. And I think we are still quite a long way away from a lot of the world, well, certainly the world. When I say the world, I guess I mean global powers, US, EU, Australia, to acknowledge at an official level that what's happening in Palestine is apartheid. And if they do recognize that, what do you do about it? Do you just sort of put out a press release and go home? Or do you change your policy do you put pressure do you put boycotts and I think increasingly that rhetoric is entering the mainstream because and I found this even since my book's come out this year a few months ago that the response and the book is not particularly about apartheid per se I talk about it but it's about much wider issues about the Israeli arms industry how it's exported globally but the response has been extraordinary around the world here came out here and also in the us and the uk and elsewhere because i think more and more people are seeing what's happening in israel today although it's been going on for a long time but it's so overt now that you have israeli government ministers proudly and unashamedly talking about ethnic cleansing i mean that they're not it's not it's not you know um obfuscation they're actually that's what that is the vision now, if that's not apartheid, I don't really know what is. And when they regularly say, many cabinet ministers are regularly saying, we didn't finish the job in 1948. They openly say it. I have quotes in the book and I could have included far more. In other words, we these are Just to give people context,
0: these are people from the extreme far-right party which is in a coalition now with the... Some far-right right and some in the Likud who are so-called mainstream right. They're not all far-right.
1: Some are, but not all. And... I think there is a real, I don't know, I really feel like this year for a lot of the world, there is a kind of unmasking happening that although these realities have been going on for a very, very long time, they're so much more overt. And it's not possible anymore to say, oh, it's this a couple of these crazy right-wing settlers? There's like you know, a handful of them. No, no, no. This is a sizable not a majority of the population, but a sizable minority and a hugely growing minority who have taken control of the state with the, I would argue, of much of the international community and Israeli Jews allowing them to for decades. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. This, This was always a very likely outcome of an extremist Jewish theocratic fundamentalist group who believe that they have the right to treat
0: any non-jew
1: as a second class citizen and they now, are now haven't in- these
0: haven't these jewish supremacists largely gotten elected by importing tons of uneducated ultra conservative jews from abroad you mean from russia particularly
1: yeah some over the air but absolutely I mean, that's, somewhere that's but the demographic
0: not all. reality which is they've seized power by having this minority of extremely enthusiastic people vote them in
1: and there are i mean one of the things that i i've said a lot since the book came out is that it's also a mistake though to say well netanyahu for example was not in power last year he was out of power for a year through various shenanigans politically in israel there were two other prime ministers in that time yes that wasn't maybe as overt in its apartheid but the occupation didn't change. In fact, last year was the most violent year against Palestinians for years until this year. So I've often said to people, let's obsess over Netanyahu if you want. But the problem is not Netanyahu. I don't like him. It's not like I'm a fan of his. Obviously, I'm not. It's like I say the same about the US. Trump is not the issue here. Trump is a symptom. It's Trump is a dangerous person, in my view. Netanyahu is dangerous too. But the issue is not Simply removing Trump or removing Netanyahu as a leader or as a candidate, it doesn't solve the problem of any of this. And I don't in know. It I mean, you know, doesn't
0: keep... solve the problem, but nothing solves the problem. These are accelerants. These in, in, Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu are extreme. Are, are gasoline on a, a small brush fire that turn it into a uh, absolutely. A, a, you know, into something. I, I'm not denying larger. any of I mean, that. You're right, but Josh. It, just take the but... counter. Take the, the the alternative history counterfactual. You know, and assume that Rabin isn't assassinated and there's actually a peace deal, then do you fast forward to 2023 and you're still saying that it wasn't Netanyahu, it was inevitable all along? Or do we live in a parallel universe in which there are two states?
1: Look, like with anything, right? It's impossible to say. I don't know. I mean, all the evidence since, obviously, this is principally since he was killed, but all the evidence since has shown that there's been never any intention. To end the occupation because the occupation has gone from. Well, there was then they 000... signed the deal. Yes, but they signed the deal while expanding the occupation. Josh, in the nineties, the settlements doubled in size, mostly under so-called left-wing government. This is what I'm saying. That well, you mean before they the, is...
0: before they signed the deal, after they signed the deal.
1: Well, after. he was
0: dead. Not before. After. <laughs> he was dead. Yeah, I know. they shot him. Yes, I mean, I know you he know. Was so dead. if he hadn't been, I'm, what I'm saying is, if he hadn't, of course. You know, you come to the table, you finally make the arrangement, you finally come out, you shake hands, you make a deal, and then the guy gets assassinated, the deal falls apart. Of course, there's an instinct when the right-wing government gets elected to go, fuck it, this was a misbegotten venture in the first place. Thank God that uh, peacemaker is dead. Let's go sure. and see him ahead with the settlements. I don't think that... I think it's just... It, it ignores yeah, the, the, a- the kind of the complex contingency of history to be like, this is the way it is, therefore it was always going to be thus.
1: No, I don't think that. No, I don't think nothing. I think nothing is inevitable. But I do think that when there were labor in Israel, labor labor prime ministers who are nominally left. These are not far right. These are not liquid. They're not right wing labor prime ministers. The settlements mostly doubled in size. These are not far right people. I mean, I mean on paper. but we're
0: talking about the past quarter century, right? We're not talking about. We are. Yeah,
1: we are. But I guess what I say is that. Hence my comment that it is a profound mistake to think that the not that you said this, but that the, that the uh, you know the soul or the or the primary issue is a person like Netanyahu. He is obviously a political animal. He's a evil genius as a political operator. He's got you know nine lives. All that's true. As is Trump, for that matter. And there are certain figures in history that, for a variety of reasons can be an accelerant. I agree and those two figures are two of them and there are obviously others. But again, this, the occupation is not just happening when these figures are in charge. This is this is the point. This is a continuum regardless of who's in power in Israel. It doesn't matter. It doesn't hasn't mattered for half a century. In fact, much of the massive settlement expansion happened under Labor. Didn't happen under Likud, happened under <laughs> Labor who were supposedly left wing.
0: Anthony, so, one of one of the just, just to wrap up the thing on apartheid, one of the people you quote unfavorably in the book is the opposition leader Benny Gantz in 2019, saying that uh, the best place to be an Arab in the Middle East is in Israel, and you say that that is that basically is like what South African apartheid era politicians used to say. Look, it's better to be a black in South South Africa than it is to be elder black elsewhere in in Africa. Uh, on the other hand, is is it not true that Israel's one of the best places to be an Arab? Uh,
1: well, obviously, I mean. Firstly, we're comparing. I mean, I, I don't know if I, I can't remember write this if, if I write this exactly in the book. I haven't got the, the, the words in front of me, but I mean, it's on one level it was a pretty weird comparison. It's like saying, right, so what you're comparing yourself to? Who, Saudi or? Oman or Morocco, which are obviously dictatorships, autocracies. They're not claiming to be democracies. And yeah, if many people in those countries, not all, but many are not treated well. But this, I think, goes to the heart. The reason I put that in the book was to say to people, and particularly, I guess, to the wider community, but also to Jewish people too, is that I think there is still a really strong sentiment of not feeling comfortable because of 20th century history, to say and acknowledge and dig deep into the fact that there is unbelievable racism within Israel, Jewish racism towards Arabs and Palestinians. And that extends into the diaspora, profoundly so, that we feel much more comfortable talking about, I don't know, Muslim racism or Muslim terrorism or Hindu terrorism or, I don't know, any other kind of extremism but we sort of feel a bit uncomfortable when I say we much in the West. I mean, I don't personally, but I understand the hesitation in a way because of the 20th century that what happens if, which I would argue is the case, there is a profound racism at the heart of much of Israeli political life and therefore much of Jewish diaspora political life. I mean, the evidence to me for that I mean, that one comment by Benny Gantz is one of many. I could have picked others. And, I do compare it to how many white South Africans talked about apartheid South Africa because back then, I mean, if you heard that in 1990, what would you say? Would you say, well, sure, it's not great in Zimbabwe under Mugabe, so, yeah, I guess it is better in Johannesburg. I mean, okay, if that's your comparison, but it's apartheid. (laughs) Mm. It's an apartheid state. And even worse, by the way, in the modern era when Israel is assisting and backing and, and selling surveillance equipment to these Arab autocracies to remain autocratic. <laughs> like, that's what they're doing. Hugely, in fact. I mean, the, the arms sales to the Arab countries are off the chart. Surveillance technology, drones, etc. So, I mean, to me, it's a pretty weird argument for a mainstream Israeli politician to say, God, we're pretty amazing compared to... The Middle East, and you say, "Well, okay, yeah, I guess." I, I have made be, this. i made be...
0: this point before. It's funny. I, I I'm enjoying being cast as the the more pro-Israeli person because I'm usually <laughs> I'm in enjoying conversations it as the right. as the yeah. I'm normally the the self-hating Jew who hates uh, who hates Israel in comparison to most people. But you're so much further along the spectrum that I get I, that I'm on the right of this conversation. But I but when I was having an argument with a more pro Israeli commentator she was uh, you know she was saying uh, making this argument that Israel is so much better than all of the uh, other countries in the Middle East and i mm-hmm. made the point but they don't compare themselves to other countries in the Middle East on the global stage they don't stand up at international forums and say look at israel we're not yemen they stand up and say, "We are like the United States, like we're a civilized country, and therefore they're inviting us to hold them to the standards of, uh, you know, of a modern Western liberal democracy." Nonetheless, I, ideally, I, it may just be that we, <laughs> that you and I, again, are in different circles. But I, I, you know, like I was working with a colleague who's a well-known uh, Australian personality, and something came out about uh, strife in Israel. And we were in the production uh, room and she... Is it a Jewish colleague of yours or non-Jewish? No, no non-Jewish. And uh, and she said, fucking Zionists, and wandered off. And there was something about like the tone that did make me think there's something in that accusation of Zionists, not Israelis. She can't say Jews, but she doesn't say that fucking country or that fucking government or whatever. It's Zionist specifically as a proxy for something that I think is aligned with post-colonial white guilt in general. That the Zionist is the avatar of all of our sins in some ways, I think, as as colonizers. And I mean, quite apart from, uh, you know, Jews not wanting to reconcile themselves to the fact that there's a racism at the heart of uh, any project that elevates one ethnicity over others, I, I think there's also a, a squeamishness amongst non-Jews uh, a, a about any harm that befalls poor colonized brown people, and that in actual fact there's a there's there is a reflexive anti-Israeli <laughs> sentiment, not among governments, not among the people who claim to speak on behalf of the Jewish community but among a large proportion of people where I think Jews see a double standard. And, and you know, you say, oh, okay, what is is, is Israel going to compare itself to Oman and Yemen and, I don't know, Morocco? Well, I mean, it's in that neck of the woods. And if we're going to boycott and divest and sanction Israel, are we going to do the same for Saudi Arabia? And, Morocco, and, no, but and if not, sure, why but... not? And why the double yeah. standard? And some people feel like it's because you know we we like the image of the endlessly suffering colonized brown person being attacked by the the white guy in a suit. Like that fits a stereotype that that pushes all the right guilt buttons in the West.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean I've, there's a lot to unpack there, but I mean if I heard a, a friend or colleague or I don't know if that colleague of yours as a friend or to someone you work with. But if someone said that in front of me, I mean, it's not I don't use that kind of language, not that I don't. I probably would go, mm, okay, that's, wow. Not, I mean, obviously what they were talking about, I guess Israel was doing something horrible, I presume. Um, and that was their response. I could potentially feel a bit uncomfortable, and I might don't know the person. I'm not for a second suggesting they're anti-Semitic. I, of course, don't know who they are. But... I think the language that we use is important. When I say we, anyone who talks about this issue, I've thought that for years and there is no doubt. I don't talk about this particularly in the book, but I talked about it in other circles. A lot of my work over the years has nothing to do with this issue, but sometimes it has obviously been a central part of my life. And there are parts of the left, I mean, it's hard to generalise, but there are parts of the left that there is a uncomfortable or concerning slippage between Jews and Zionists. There obviously is anti-Semitism in parts of the left. There can be. Of course there can be. Are some people who are anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic. Of course they are. I can't put a number on it. I, th- I think it's a relatively small amount. But, yeah, of course, I don't deny any of that. But then I think if you're a Palestinian having that conversation with friends and you say, well... Gee, you know, I can't, I can't go back to Palestine. I can't become a citizen. a state doesn't exist. Uh, my family's home was demolished last week by the IDF. How would you view that situation? Not you particularly, but how would one view that situation? Then would you mm. would you look favourably at what Israel is doing? And I would suggest certainly most Palestinians I know, and I presume you'd say the same, would not go. Well, yeah, I guess I'd rather be in. I don't know, the West Bank than Saudi. I mean, sure, I guess if you're forced to choose between, you know, the horrendous war in Yemen and living in Tel Aviv, I guess most people would choose Tel Aviv. It's a no-brainer, I guess, if you have to choose. But I agree with you that Israel doesn't seemingly want to compare itself to autocracies. It says we are a thriving democracy and, as I say in the book, you should copy from us and we will sell you the tools and technologies to repress your own people. And to me, when you are a state that was born in the ashes of the Holocaust, after the most cataclysmic war, violence, genocide against Jews imaginable, and I don't know your, your history, Josh, but I presume there was some connection to the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. My dad came not... on,
0: a, on a boat when he was eight years old as a, as a, a war-torn penniless refugee. Uh, his, his uh, parents were Holocaust uh, esca- escapees, not, uh, they weren't in the camps but yes. there were, all of their families yes, were same. Out. Hmm.
1: yes yes so there's a, a deep connection then and obviously I don't know exactly your upbringing but yeah I mean it was a it was a key part of well not key part of my upbringing I mean I'm, I think you and I may roughly a similar age but yeah it was certainly something I mean I was often told as I said that Israel was something we should support because of the history and that it was a safe haven we could go to if God forbid something happens and I think a lot of I think a lot of younger Jews do, well, less and less do believe that, of course, but I think many people still share that view. And I am constantly saying to people that the language that we use to talk about this issue is important, that it's important that we don't, obviously, don't use language to demonise Jews, that there is an acknowledgement anti-Semitism is real and in certain parts of the world it's growing. But, of course, the great irony, frankly, of Israel's existence, 75 years-odd, After its birth, is that it's more unsafe in Israel as a Jew than in frankly most places in the world.
0: Well, also, the current current Israeli uh, position and strategy is making Jews everywhere more unsafe. I mean, you know, the 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 tragic tragic irony of it is that I do, I firmly believe that the rise in anti-Semitism in the West uh, is not helped by uh, Israeli Israel's misbehaviour and the plight of the Palestinians and Jews everywhere would be a lot safer if Israel were more reasonable.
1: I mean obviously I agree with that, but you would know that saying that in the majority of mainstream Jewish establishment circles, you'd be harassed for that kind of comment. I mean I've said it for years, but that is not really ma- the so. mainstream I, honestly don't Jewish think so. view. It, I don't think no,
0: it is. I I think that is a main I I uh, most Most Jews are not you know, fans of Naftali Bennett. Most Jews are Jerry Seinfeld uh, <laughs> Jews. The most Jews sure. are just people who... So he's who very pro-Israel, by the way. Yeah, yeah he's a lot. very pro-Israel, he? but yes. I don't know. But, you know, yeah, they're, is, um, yeah. they're just regular people walking mm, around. So yes. I want to talk about, you've mentioned several times the, uh, the, hard, the military hardware and spyware that the Israeli state exports to some of these autocracies. Uh, tell us about that. Maybe Pegasus is an interesting place to start.
1: Yeah, so a lot of listeners will be aware of Pegasus. You know, it's a probably the most infamous spyware. Spyware basically is a tool that is installed without your knowledge on your phone. So you might have an Android or an um, iPhone, whatever you may have, and all the contents of the of your phone. So literally everything, text messages, photos, emails, can be viewed by someone else. Usually, the way this works is that. NSO Group is an Israeli company. It started about 15 or so years ago and developed these incredibly powerful tools. The people who were involved with it were veterans of the Israeli military who'd spent decades surveilling Palestinians. So they took that experience and built a, back then it was BlackBerry in the good old days, but it obviously evolved into modern smartphones, Apple and um, Android, and it's just an unbelievably powerful tool where you have huge numbers of states. We don't know exactly the number, but in the high dozens, probably 70 or 80 around the world states, democracies and dictatorships, militaries buy it, government departments buy it, police departments buy it. And essentially, it's it's a spying tool that allows, you know, all of us, for better or worse, spend so much of our lives on phones these days that it lets you essentially control someone's life without their knowledge. And particularly in a country which is a non-democracy, really threatens people's lives. So, for example, a lawyer might have information about a client or a journal about a source, whatever it may be. And one of the reasons why that's got so much attention in the last years, particularly Pegasus, is there's been a number of leaks. Some listeners may remember that. I talk about those in the book. People can Google that for more if they want. But essentially, it shows how so many governments are utterly obsessed with these tools because they just give you an unbelievable amount of power over people you don't like, dissidents, critics, human rights activists. And this is not just autocracies, this is also um, democracies as well. So I I talk a lot in the book about Pegasus, but Pegasus is the tip of the iceberg, that really the key point I was trying to make in the book around this, and I call it the Palestine Laboratory, is that Israel has spent decades and decades developing tools and technologies to control Palestinians under occupation. And after half a century, those tools and technologies have been battle-tested in Palestine on Palestinians. You have huge numbers of companies which promote their tools, drones, spyware, facial recognition technology, biometric tools, whatever it may be. They actually promote them in PR material that's battle-tested in Palestine and they sell them around the world and... As I detail in the book, over 130 countries in the world, so the majority of nations on the planet. And the reason this, to me, is important, now, apart from the obvious human rights disaster, is that it shows that the occupation of Palestine is not staying there. Like so many, I've done a lot of reporting in the last 20 years of huge numbers of conflicts, in South, living in South Sudan years ago, in Afghanistan, and these conflicts are horrific and brutal. There's no question about that. But they basically stay within their borders roughly, give or take. Some of the refugees, of course, are not, but the conflict itself mostly does, although Afghanistan obviously bleeds into Pakistan often. But what's happening in Palestine is that the conflict itself and the tools that are used to maintain that are now a huge key part of Israel's export business. And Israel goes around the world, both as a government, successive governments, and companies, saying, you can do what we do. And it's not just about the tools. It's also about the idea of getting away with it because Israel does get away with it. There's no one stopping them, really. They have complete impunity. And I say in the book that I would argue that the the weapons and the surveillance and all these repressive techniques that Israel sells is really an insurance policy for Israel because there are people in Israel, the elites there, who recognize that a lot of people around the world don't like what they're doing. They don't, a lot of family occupation, they don't like the awful treatment of Palestinians. But Israel thinks, and from its perspective I'd say pretty correctly, at least for now, that if you sell so many of these tools to states around the world, they're much less likely to really criticise you where it matters. Sure, they might put out an occasional press release saying that the settlements are terrible, but it's cheap, words are cheap, there's no action. And most of and Israel, I think, calculates correctly that and the evidence is clear that very, very few states, in fact, really no states, are seriously interested in challenging Israeli occupation beyond the occasional
0: press release. Presumably, they're certainly not going to boycott you altogether, if their own intelligence services and militaries are reliant on your highly sophisticated. Absolutely, Material. absolutely, indeed. And
1: Israel is selling both to large countries that have their own intelligence services, but often states that can't develop it themselves. So, I mean, there's so many examples, but one country that really strike, strikes me is so fascinating about this is Mexico, which obviously was, was run for years by right-wing governments. Now it's nominally left-wing, although you could argue about that. They're the country the most obsessed in the world with spyware. Israeli spyware, utterly obsessed with it, of all levels of government. So they're spying on dissidents and journalists and human rights activists and God knows who else. And I interviewed some people in the book who were victims of these of this spyware. Now, spyware doesn't directly kill you. It's not a it's not a gun. It's not a you know armed drone. But in a place like Mexico, if you're a, one of those minority groups that are fighting, well, not in a literal sense, but fighting corruption and and the profound collapse of the Mexican state when half the country is permanently at war because of the crazy drug war, then being spied on by the state without any accountability by Israeli technology, which is tested first on Palestine, makes people profoundly scared. And I interviewed a lot of people in the book who are really scared about their, not just their sources, but their day-to-day life because of drug cartels or government violence. So Pegasus can be a way into this story for a lot of people because they've heard about it and it's got a bit of press in the last five or so years, but it's a tip of the iceberg.
0: I mean, some of the analogies you use are terrifying because uh, military uh, hardware can be ter- terrifying and, and spying software can be terrifying. But then there are some examples, like you use the example of uh, patrolling Europe's borders in the Mediterranean using Israeli-made drones and the EU doing that, as if that is prima facie, a bad thing. Can't the uh, pro-Israeli military hardware and spyware person just say look, it's a tough world. Lots of people need lots of tools. Uh, Some of those tools get used for bad purposes, but most of them get used for good purposes. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the European Union having borders and using drones to figure out when refugees are coming across the ocean. So if we don't make them somewhere, why is that a catastrophe?
1: Uh, well, you described that in a very nice and benign way there, Josh, but actually what the European <laughs> Union is doing is not that. What they're doing is, and Israeli drones are obviously one part of a much larger architecture. Of course, the EU is not doing this because of Israel. The EU has made a decision in the last years to essentially allow people to drown. That is the policy decision of the European Union, and we know that. And I have this is reminiscent of the, of the Australian this, policy numbers.
0: towards people arriving by boat as well. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. It's very similar. And the very few rescue boats are sent out by the EU. The NGOs that do rescue people are mostly either given very short shrift by the EU or are massively outnumbered. And I really much respect the NGOs that are doing that. They're in the book. But, you know, how many NGO boats can, can monitor the whole Mediterranean? Very, very few. And so the Israeli drones, which are unarmed, are monitoring the Mediterranean 24-7, sending back footage to... Frontex, which is the EU border security arm in Poland, Warsaw. And that's where the choices are made, not by Israel, of course, but by the EU, which boats will get rescued and which won't, which migrants will drown and which won't. And just this week, in fact, they released the latest figures of how many people are drowning and the numbers are soaring. We're talking thousands and thousands a year. And those Israeli drones were first tested in Gaza, over Gaza, in various Israeli wars against Gaza. And you could argue, well... If the EU didn't use an Israeli drone, they would maybe get it from Turkey or somewhere else. Yeah, that's possibly true. And Turkish drones, as an example, are surging in popularity because they're much cheaper, in fact, than Israeli drones. And they've become quite ubiquitous in many conflicts now around the world. But I think it's important that Israel is selling a lot of this architecture to the EU because, again, it goes back to the same point that they are selling not just a, a tool, in this case, not a weapon, but a tool, but they're selling an idea. And I think the issue of how Israel deals with its borders, which essentially I cannot think of a more ironic situation, a grimly ironic situation where they essentially are surrounded by walls. They're ghettoising themselves within the Middle East. Now, you could say, well, there are threats from other countries and we can have that discussion. But a lot of other places around the world do admire that. And the EU, whereas years ago never had a great refugee policy, but certainly it was better than it is now. And it's only getting more hardline. And I do think that the book was partly written also as a warning to say to people and countries in general, we have a choice in decades to come. There are currently around 100 million migrants around the world, according to the UN, which is the highest number since World War II, who are looking for safe haven. Most people look in their own country or in neighbouring nations. They don't travel across the world, but many people, of course, do as well. And that number is only going to increase because of climate change, climate wars, all these other issues. And nations are going to have to make choices about what kind of so-called border security they want. And I think that the evidence so far, you'll be shocked to know, I think this, is pretty grim, (laughs) what the EU is doing, what the Australians have done for 20-odd years, what the British are trying to do now, what um, France and others are doing, offshoring refugees in godforsaken places in Africa and elsewhere is the sign of things to come. And Israeli architecture is a key part of that in many nations' border security, including the U.S. on the U.S.-Mexico border.
0: I mean, of course, as the, as the grandchild or even child, as the child of uh, refugees, I've always been strongly supportive of taking in lots of refugees. And during the Syrian migrant crisis, I was outspoken about the need to be compassionate towards these people and to have some kind of an international system that can share the burden so you don't end up with Lebanon and Turkey shouldering uh, you know, as much of the burden as they currently do, and a systematic way of divvying People up, including to some of those rich countries that are completely awful on reset on the resettling, accepting resettled refugees. Uh, Australia at least has a reasonably good score on on that. Um, but I mean, I, you just to to put a button on the is on the example of Israeli ingenuity in the form of drones. I mean, I would argue that if it were the case that that the world got to a position at which there was a more well, firstly, there's a socio cultural and kind of political argument that can be made, which says that in the absence of a of strong borders and a clear headed immigration policy, you get nasty xenophobic backlash. And that if the US had, for example, gotten on top of its immigration twenty years ago, you wouldn't have Donald Trump because there would be a sense of orderliness to the process that Americans feel is totally out of control. And that point has been made in the Australian context that the price that you pay for transforming australia from a white country just a half century ago to one of the most multi-ethnic countries in the world that the the price that you pay is is you have to have a a, a quite a rigid immigration policy in order to get buy-in from people who from the population that believes that people are coming here because we want them to rather than because they just show up we don't have to litigate that argument but i think there's probably some validity that's that's an argument that's made i
1: mean i would i would i mean yes there's no doubt that a lot of people do argue like that but i would suggest that the word to use for australia's immigration policy i don't know if rigid's quite the right word when you have basically um what do you call what's happening on Manus Island or Nauru in the last 15, 20 years? I mean, I don't know if Richard's you know, the word people. I wouldn't call it that, but I mean, I'm not the, saying no, you, I'm, The entire yeah.
0: post-war, I mean, the entire post-war uh, immigration policy taken as, as a whole, and as you said of Israel, this has been a bipartisan thing in Australia as well, where Labor governments have presided over it. Over it too, but I would also just say that if we get to a world in which there is a much more humane uh, and cooperative resettlement of refugees, and that has to be managed by uh, intelligent systems and AIs and all kinds of computers and uh, and barriers that allocate people and transport them around, you can also bet that Israeli ingenuity will be up the front, going like, "Hey, we're the little country that could. We're going to be able to provide those systems as well." So, in a sense, isn't Israel preying on? whatever the need is and at the moment we live in a world where a lot of people are asking for spyware and bombs and if we made another world they would just as easily i mean they are making lots of innovative things in ai and medical advances and so on as well they're they're mercenaries they'll make what you what people need <laughs>
1: yeah i mean look i don't really call weapons that have been tested in palestine as ingenuity i mean yes israel claims that's what it is and there'll be a market for it i mean of course as i say in the book israel's not the only country selling weapons i mean the u.s is number one by a mile it sells 40 percent of the world's weapons and arguably any nation that sells weapons by definition the whole industry is amoral i mean that's just the nature of the arms industry one of the most corrupt industries in the world along with the illegal drug trade i mean of course israel's not alone in doing that there's no question that's true I think the difference is that Israel has a ready-made, occupied population on its doorstep for over half a century to be able to test and trial these weapons. And I think for a lot of people, based on the response to the book, have either been, not entirely, or some people are unaware, but were really shocked by the extent of it, the detail, and the amount of nations in the last half century that Israel has assisted in their repression across pretty much every part of the world. So again showing that the occupation is exported. And I think that is part of making more people aware of not just what's going on over there, but the threat, in my view, of what Israel poses. The threat is not just the Palestinians, which is bad enough. I mean, it's 5 million occupied Palestinians who are living under a a brutal occupation. But there's huge numbers of other people around the world who are suffering under Israeli weapons and drones and God knows what else, as they show in the book Spyware. They're also under threat and I think that is exactly the way, I didn't write the book for this reason, but that is exactly the way when you speak to people who campaigned against apartheid South Africa back in the day, I guess started years ago, but obviously culminated in the 1990s when apartheid fell in 94. But it's about showing people and explaining to people, in their case, the extent of the connections that South Africa had with many other nations, and Israel is on a far bigger scale, frankly, than South Africa ever could hope to be. It's making people aware of that. And what they do with those tools as a writer, I'm not telling people what to do with it, I'm making people aware of it, and what they do with it is up to them. And to to say, I think the book is also a warning. Like, is this the kind of world we want to continue to be in? I would say no, and I'm guessing you would agree with that. And some people would say, well, it's a brutal world, and this is how it is. Well, I guess, but that argument could have have been made at any point in human history. (laughs) It, no.
0: <laughs> right. Anthony, I want to end with a, uh, a, a look towards the future, what the future of Israel might be, uh, what a one-state solution would look like, but I want to thank our free listeners for listening. If you're subscribed to the free version of the podcast, uh, then we'll wrap it up, and I, I greatly thank Anthony for the conversation. Uh, if you want to be a premium subscriber, you can go to listen to get your own personalized feed. Anthony, a one-state solution What would it look like? What would it be? A one-state solution, which before I briefly explain. To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for Uncomfortable Conversations with Substack.